those nights when one drink with the girls turns into a bottle, but you need your car for brunch the next day. There's pickup. Or at Friday work drinks, where you don't want to leave your car with expensive tools at the pub. There's pickup. Don't miss out on the fun. Get a pickup. Simply book on our app, and we'll pick you up to drive you and your car home. Two drivers arrive, one drives you home in your car, and the other driver follows. Download the pickup app today. That's PKUP, and wake up worry free. Hi, I'm David Reynolds, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars, Tony Whitlock and Craig Gravel, and we're joined by one of the early stalwarts of supercars, a man who is still involved in not motorsport as such, but the industry of uh, automobiles and trucks and things of that nature. Welcome to Tony Manson, a past operations manager for V8 Supercars. Hey Tony, hey Craig, great, great to be here with you. It's, uh, it's wonderful to uh, reflect back on uh, great times because you were there at a time when the series was certainly punching, not well above its weight, but it was uh, a sport that was well and truly on the uh, horizon of up-and-comers. Um, Let's just go back pre your joining supercars in the year 2000 and your motorsport entree and, and how you got to where you were in, at that stage. Oh, look, it would be quite a long story, Tony, so I'll try and give you the short version. Um, you know, I competed here in my early 20s at a, at a local state level, nothing professional, um, and used to work as a senior official at big race meetings because one of the benefits of being a volunteer official of course is you get in for free you get closer to the action than anyone else and you feel part of it and um, part of that was uh, I was working in Adelaide at the first Australian Grand Prix in pit lane and uh, was talking to some of the guys from the teams in England and I reached a point where I said you know what I've been doing what I've been doing here but I really want to be over in the UK and, and give this a crack so I um, the advice from all of them was if you want to work in racing, you've got to be in England knocking on the door. You won't get a job applying from Australia. So I got myself a one-way ticket, went to England. Um, first job was working for Autosport magazine, just selling advertising space, which gave me the benefit of getting the magazine a day before it was on the newsstands. So um, there was a job I advertised at Rolt Cars, building Formula 3 cars. So I applied for that, went and had an interview. I could do enough that they said, yep, you can come here and do that. So I started working at Rolt uh, and was on the build of the car, the Formula 3, the Formula 3000 cars. We even did a, uh, even jumped onto a um, Formula Atlantic at one stage. Um, so did the build for that year. And as it was coming to its end, I was offered a, a job by West Surrey Racing in Formula 3, who at the time really were the best Formula 3 team, I'd have to say, in Europe. They were the people who'd run Ayrton Senna and a num- uh, Maurizio Guzelman and a num- number of other championship-winning uh, drivers. Um, so I uh, went to work for them. And over the next few years, because it is a fairly transitory existence working for race teams, over the next few years I've, I've progressed from Formula 3 to Formula 3000 um, and to Formula 1 with the Brabham Formula 1 team. Um so, you know, there's a lot of parts to that, but, you know, we're talking short version here. If I gave you the full version, we'd be on the phone for a couple of hours. Um, 
And, uh, yeah, I, I um, was initially working on cars and sort of driving a truck and then um, and doing all the logistics. And, and the higher up the tree, you're more specialised you get. So by the time I reached Formula One, I wasn't doing much on the cars at all. In fact, virtually nothing. And uh, was driving, you know, what truckie as we're called, driving the transporter, looking after all the logistics, all the international air freight and all that sort of stuff. There was a little team of us doing that. And I enjoyed it immensely and, um, you know, was uh, was at Brabham when it was closed down uh, in 91. And um, at, at, at a point not long after that, decided, you know, for various reasons, it was a bit of a recessionary period over there, uh, I came back to Australia. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, having done what I'd done in Europe, I, I, uh, I, I spoke to a couple of people, including Fred Gibson, about maybe getting involved with teams here. But there were none of them really looking for, you know, it wasn't the professional scene that we have now. And I don't mean that in a bad way. They just didn't have as many people working for them. And they didn't have specialised people to quite the same extent that we see now. So um, uh, there really weren't the right openings there. And I, and I, so I ended up going back into the mainstream motor industry, which I'd done uh, when I was younger. I'd worked for Mercedes-Benz in my early 20s. Um, and uh, I ended up working for Volvo Car Australia, and, of course, we had the Super Touring Program run out of that, that but I really wasn't involved in that. It was run out of another part of the company, um, and then I went to work for Saab, and um, anyway, I, um, I got to a point where Saab was just, you know, great product, company wasn't so great. I decided to get out of there, and I went and had a, a talk and a coffee with Howard Marsden, who I knew um, from the U.K., um, not well, but I'd, I'd met him. Um, and we went and had a coffee and just talked about the motor racing scene here. And long story made short, that weekend he was um, sitting with Tony Cochran and Wayne Caddock and they said, we're looking for a good operations guy and we're struggling to find the right person. And just to explain, the operations guy, operations manager back then was uh, is what was called the motorsport manager now. So... The operations manager role at Avesco was to run the motor racing part of the business. We had people doing marketing, people doing finance. The operations was to run the motor racing side of what we did. They hadn't had anyone in that role. It was a new role. So I was the first one. So Howard said to them, I think I've got the guy for you. I just met him this week. Um, and um, long story made short, spoke to them on the phone um, we had pretty much agreed terms, flew up just to make sure I had one head. And um, uh, we, we, we signed, signed everything on the dot, dotted line, whatever morning it was. I think it was a Thursday morning. And then Wayne said, well, you better come out with me to Queensland Raceway. We're, we're having a meeting about the, um, the surface out there and some of the problems we've had. So I hadn't even officially started, but we'd agreed terms and uh, went out to Queensland Raceway had that meeting, um, had a brainwave during the meeting, came up with a solution to sort the track surface problems that had existed, um, and the solution that was used, and it worked. And from that moment on, it was just full steam ahead. So, yeah, that's the that's the brief version, Tony. Okay, and is that 2000? Yeah, that was 2000. So I, uh, my first race uh, that I went to... Uh, I missed the, the I, I got taken on. I was employed just after the first round that year, which was at Phillip Island. 
Um, and then the second uh, the second event for the year, not round, but second event was the Grand Prix, and that was my first race meeting in the role. You worked certainly very closely then with Wayne Caddick. Um, yes. And Wayne is the uh, longest-serving member of the uh, supercars, and, of course, he was, at that stage, had been the managing director at Dick Johnson Racing, then taken over, and Cochran had recruited him for the role. Um, yeah. He uh, was an amazing man, Wayne, uh, a Shell Oil Company man originally, uh, highly respected in the job he did, and set a benchmark. Would you agree that he was a benchmark for quite some years? Oh, hell yeah. I'd say he still is in reality. Um, you know, like, it's... Um, I think he really... Uh, the the combination of um, Tony Cochran as the sort of visionary driven out there um, entertainment I guess background um, chairman and and Tony was very hands on he wasn't a remote chairman he was there in the office most days um, they were a very good combination because they're very different people they didn't always see eye to eye. But between them, they were able to cover all bases, if that makes sense. And um, so, yeah, I thought Wayne was extremely effective in the role. Um, he'd been part of um, part of the original setup of Tiga back when it was first started, um, and um, he'd been heavily involved, understood understood people in the team's world, even though he, he motor racing to him, he hadn't been involved in until he went to Dick Johnson Racing. He'd learned a lot. He'd been there quite a few years, and he understood the Belinda business, and he had a pretty good understanding of what fans wanted as well. And I, and I actually think that's been lacking in all the CEOs appointed after Wayne right up until now because I think, that's something that Shane Howard has that none of the others prior to him have actually had. That real understanding of the people in the sport and, you know, what it is that fans want and how they react to it. And I think that's a really positive thing with Shane's appointment. Which is interesting you bring up that point, Tony, because uh, something quite uh, that stands out of Shane Howard's background, because unlike all seven predecessors in the job, uh, to Shane Howard is, uh, is that he was and still is a fan of motor racing. He competed, um, even rode motorbikes, um, and therefore he has that innate understanding of what the sport is and what it needs and what you need to bring, as you just said, about understanding yeah. the fans. Yeah, exactly. You know, like um, I think, uh, I don't know if it's still the case, but there was a point there where when you go to the the pub at um, oh man I'm in Tasmania's Longwood in, up near um, where they used to have the Grand Prix it used to be a road course anyway Longford Longford in in the pub there I think from memory there's a steering wheel mounted on the wall in a case and that was actually essentially donated to the pub by Shane's family I think um, I think I've got the story right but look he definitely he's originally from Tasmania. He, um, he raced an open-wheeler car. He raced a sports car. It was a long time ago. Um, but, you know, in, in the same way that, uh, you know, a lot of people involved in the sport, including me, may have competed a long time ago, it still stays with you. Once It's one of those things that once it's in your blood, it's never going to go away. Um, 
And Shane has been involved with supercars for a long time. He he started as an employee, I think. I think I'm right in saying it was uh, in 04. I think it was sort of around the middle of 04 from memory. But prior to that, he'd been um, the main project manager at Weather at Howe, who used to do all the um, the circuit building work for us uh, at a number of events. Um, so he was the guy I liaised with extensively on the build of the Canberra circuit, for example, the Canberra street circuit, Weather at Howe did all that. Um the Gold Coast Indy, we, you know, that's a weather at how build. So, you know, we worked with them extensively on that. Um, there were also a number of other um, events that nearly came off, but didn't quite, that we did a lot of design and planning work in the event that they might happen. So we'd, we'd had a lot to do with Shane. He'd been around the business. He he's, he knows Coco well. He's, his, his wife actually used to work for Avesco for a while there. So his connection is strong, and he's, so he's been there, seen it, felt it, and, and known about it for some time. Comes from a motor racing background. And, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, he's, a, he's a good, I'd have to say he's, I think, a pretty good politician in that, um, and I don't mean that in a negative way, in, in terms of he's good politically in, in, in dealing with a board and also with structuring and looking after staff and being a good connection between the two. And I think he'll be very effective as a CEO, you know, like not surprised about that at all. Um, and, uh, but, but man, he's got a, you know, there's a lot going on, isn't there? So he'll have a lot to deal with, but then that role has always been like that. Indeed. It's um, interesting looking back at the way in which he's evolved in the job. I mean, Obviously, having been involved in the, uh, the ticketing side and the events organisation side, those are areas that you know he has well covered. Um, were there times um, when, I mean, for instance, there are a couple of times when some CEOs like Cameron Levick, he ran into an absolute buzzsaw over sponsorship crashes and things like that. Um, Martin Whitaker, he had some troubled times even though he thought it was going to be a breeze compared to his time in Formula One. David Malone was just probably, uh, it was way above his skill level to be in that job. And then James Warburton, who was the, the, the besides Caddick, James was the one who really shone brightest over this time period. Uh, I imagine you'd agree with that sentiment. Yeah, I wasn't there working directly with him, but I, I, I'd agree with that. I, I think... Um... I think for a period there, what did show up, though, Tone, is that, um, and, and it was revealed in the announcements of the various people you've just mentioned, is each time it would be like, well, we, we've employed this person because they've got a very good background in television. There was a lot of focus on doing the television deal and, and, and having the right deal. And, and, of course, that only comes around once every few years. And, and I just... I felt that for a while there that it was something that Archer didn't really fully get their head around is, yes, you need to have a good TV deal. That's important, not just for the dollars for the series, but to be able to get out to the world properly, to the fans. But that only comes up every few years for, you know, for, for the other 150 weeks, if you like, between TV deals. You've got to run the game. 
and you've got to put on something that people want to watch and you've got to run it properly and you've got serious stakeholders who are seriously committed in terms of the teams and and on top of that, serious stakeholders who are seriously committed in sponsors and in state governments in some cases and in events. And all of those things need a lot of work and, and need to be handled correctly. And I just... Uh, and for that, it does help to have a deeper understanding of the sport itself and what can and can be achieved, can and can't be achieved. And I think that was even even James Warburton, I think, would put his hand up and say, "Well, yeah, there are thing, plenty of things on you, but maybe not, maybe not all of those things." And I and I think that um, with the right board in place, which I, I think they may have, I, I don't know, but I get the feeling that they've got a pretty good board now. I get the feeling that um, that Mr Nettlefold is probably a little bit like Coco, not in terms of personality, but in terms of how he might approach the role, you know, very committed, very hands-on. Um, I think it could actually work really effectively again, um, which it needs to because it's kind of lost its way for a little bit. It's not a disaster, but it's not as strong as it was. And um, I think if they could, if they can get, back to having that focus and that commitment and really deliver some great stuff, um, I think there's a, there's a lot there that's still really good. Tony, in my dealings with Shane over the years, and it's interesting because he sort of went to ground there in the more recent time, but he has had two cracks at the CEO job before in interim positions and mm. in two very different um, structures pre-Archer yep. and post-Archer. He's yep. now going to have a structure where he's got one probably huge advantage. Mm. The team owners aren't going to be in charge or even uh, as influential as they are on the day-to-day decision-making. Yeah, possibly, Craig. From what I understand, and, and bear in mind that I'm seeing this from the outside, so I don't know the detail, but from what I understand, the Supercars Commission now will include every team owner, not just a rep, not just a, a group of them who are elected. So it probably depends a little bit on how much, on where the lines are drawn between the commission and the board in terms of who does what. Um, so yes, that may still be the case. But ultimately, you know, it's a funny thing. You know, having all the team owners in the room, you'd think that a twenty-minute meeting will turn into a 200-minute meeting because a lot more people to be part of it and, you know, have their opinion. But sometimes you get a group together and and there'll be some of them who really feel that rather than painting that wall black like everyone else, it really needs to be orange. But then they very quickly realise they're the only ones that feel that way and sometimes it can smooth things out quite a a great deal. So that remains to be seen how that's going to work. But, look, ultimately, Craig, whether... whether, the various stakeholders uh, are directly involved and and providing instruction or whether they're directly involved through, in this case, turning up with their teams and being part of the race meetings. You've still got to, to, if you like, manage them. You still need to spend time with them. You still need to understand their needs. And, and, you know, it, it is... It's not always an easy exercise because ultimately every team owner is a successful person who's very competitive and driven and, if you like, a bit of an A-type personality. That's the nature of the people doing it. 
but the same thing for the drivers and the same thing for the chief mechanics and the same thing for the, the team managers. So you've got a, a lot of very competitive, very driven, very committed people who tend to be very passionate about what they're doing. And um, so, you know, y- y- there are times where there's a bit of a hornet's nest going on. There are other times where it's smoother. But ultimately, you know, you've got to be able to handle that. It's not It's not a... Um, it's it's not a it's a pretty intense environment is what I'm trying to say. So um, yeah, I, I I I think the other thing though, Craig, that the chain definitely has going for him in this current structure is previously he was in as an interim role, and when you're in an interim role, you know you're interim, you're a caretaker, you're really trying to keep everything on an even keel to have something to hand over to the permanent person, but you're also limited in you know, even if you've got a vision to do something quite differently that would work, you can only go so far with that because you're, an inter- you're in an interim role. So I think having the role permanently makes a difference, and I do get the feeling that there's a that that, that this board and and the ownership structure now are very strongly driven to you know, if you like, turn the ship around or or get it back onto into a much better place than it has been at. So I think. You know, I think he's in a good place. I think there's a great opportunity there. And, um, you know, it, it could be a very satisfying few years for him to really deliver some great outcomes. Speaking of pressure, Tony, would like you to uh, give us an understanding of the opening event uh, for this year. Is uh, still looking likely it's going to be Newcastle. And you've been involved there from the start. Um albeit in a consultative role because you're not on salary or staff with uh, supercars or Vesco as they were. Tell us about uh, the Newcastle event and what's coming up for us this year. Uh, well, look, it's a fantastic event. I genuinely love it. I, um, I got involved because I was living uh, not that far from Newcastle when it was first getting started. And um, I, I rang and offered some, said, look, if you want help, I'm here. Uh, so, you know, I get heavily involved with support categories and with the logistics of getting all the teams in and out and a number of other things. So um, it, it is, I, I love the location, the fact that it's down where it is right on the water. My um, my mother's family are actually from Newcastle and, and I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid and I've got a big number of cousins who live there. So it's, it you know, it's quite an emotional connection for me to be part of that event as well um in terms of what's running there this year right now i i don't have i, I know career a cup are running i believe that's been announced um i don't have confirmation on who the other supports are this year but i can tell you mate whatever runs there is going to be good i i think the the circuit is just a fantastic layout it's got elements to it that we really don't have anywhere else in the country. You know, that climb up towards the beach and that corner at the top of the hill where they, you know, it's it, you just don't see on television what the elevation is. And it's really cool to be up there and, and to watch them coming around that corner because they're, they're not quite all airborne, but it feels like they're going to be. Um, and then the run down the hill from that point along the beach Again, you don't always see it on TV, but when you're there live, it's the apartments down driver's left are pretty much full of people out on balconies 
So it's got that almost Monaco-type feel. And then over on the right, you've got people surfing and the beach down on your right, and it's just very, very cool. Um, this year, I know the plan is um, to bring the music concert on Saturday night back inside the precinct. Um, so, you know, that'll, that really, again, is a, is a positive thing. Um, and, I, and I'm just looking forward to a, to a special event. We're, um, the logistics on it are quite a challenge because of where it's lo- located. Everyone has to pitch in very hard because there's essentially only one road in and one road out for the trucks and transporters and bring in all the concrete blocks, everything involved. But everyone makes it work. Everyone has to go very hard to deliver. But ultimately, that makes it really satisfying once uh, once we run a good event, which it has been each each year up until now. The atmosphere there is really good. Uh, you know, walking around, people just really genuinely enjoy being there. It's great. I certainly agree with everything you've just said. And I can actually certainly say that I've walked that track uh, of a street circus. I've walked that track more than any of the others in Australia. Um, it, there are so many different aspects of it that are fantastic. The, the uh, that corner at the top when you turn left, you head down through the S as it's called. Um, it, it's just wonderful. And to see the crowd, the way in which they are so closely placed to the track, um, yep. albeit, you know, safely placed, it, yep. it is wonderful. One of the remarkable things I find about the track, and having been there I think at least four times, um, is that there have been so few real crashes the great skill levels that are shown across a great number of categories in negotiating that pretty narrow place uh, track is, is yep. extraordinary. I mean, the, the most famous crash has been the uh, Lowndes McLaughlin one in yep. 17. Yep. But um, it's just extraordinary how well that, that's been done there. Yeah, look, I think that's a combination of a couple of things. There's a lot of skill from all the drivers involved, not just in the main game, supports as well. I think, you know, it focuses the mind on a street track. You really need to, you know, have your stuff together. Um, but I think as well the um, the layout and the design has been really well done in terms of making it usable and, and limiting, you know, risky if you like risky, any street circuit tends to have inherent risks because of the nature of it. And, and if you manage them right and you design it right, you can, you can, you know, you can limit those and still have a really exciting, really good track to race on. And I think um, that's definitely the case there. I mean, if you take a case in point, I mean, the light rail in Newcastle crosses the track. Now, you know, so it's, it's, it's like the people who live in Melbourne, it's like, a racetrack where you know crossing over where there are tram lines now you know how you make that safe you'd look at it and say god how's that going to work but from an engineering point of view they've got that crossing to a point that when you're watching the race you wouldn't even know it's there you know it's very effectively managed very effectively engineered um i think the tarmac that's used there gives pretty good grip um, which I think does help from a from a point of view of drivers being able to control the chariot, um, and it just works. You know, I can remember the first year there were a lot of people were concerned that there weren't going to be enough passing opportunities. It was all the talk leading into the first event was about 
fear of lack of passing opportunities. And then that year, of course, it was the final. It was the last race of the series. So there was a lot hanging on it. But in actual fact, people were able to pass left, right and centre. Not at every point on the track, but there were plenty of passing opportunities and they remain there till today. You know, there's been some reprofiling, for example, happened at the hairpin down at the harbour to to improve the opportunity for passing there, which it did, delivered. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's evolved into, I think, a, a really good, effective racetrack. And it's just a fantastic event. You know, it's just as events go, forget about being a motorsport thing, just in general. It's a fantastic event with a real buzz to it that you can feel walking around everywhere. It's it's great. And I think we have to give Simona D. Silvestrin some credit because of that IndyCar experience. She was able to show the supercar drivers that there were other places on the track to make moves. Oh, didn't she, though? Honestly, you know, it was just... And, and you know, I have to say, I I thought... The, the moves she was pulling off at that track, given that it was it was new to everyone, so she didn't have she was in the same boat as everyone else for the first time because that was I think I, from memory it was her first year, and so she was turning up all the way through the year to tracks that the others all knew pretty well and she was learning, so they turned up one all learning and and her results were just extraordinary it was fantastic there was a real buzz about that and I was very very happy for her because you know it's it's good to see someone genuinely talented which Simona definitely is it's good to see someone who who's talented being able to really show that when for various reasons they hadn't she hadn't been able to earlier so it was great and it was a few years ago now but Will Powell was at Bathurst and a few of us journalists were just having a, a chat with him and it's funny what you talk about the tram crossing because uh, the joke was, uh, well, the, the conversation went to, of course, IndyCars coming back for the Gold Coast, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the one of the journo's said something like, "Oh, well, we can't do it now. There's tram tracks," and yep. he just laughed and he goes, "Well, that doesn't worry IndyCars. You should yep. see some of the street races, <laughs> street tracks we race on." <laughs> and I guess that's one of the interesting things is balancing up the risk versus the uh, the risk versus the um, actual engineering you can do to mitigate it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and, and it's street races, um, you know, street circuits um, offer up a completely different challenge. None of them are, are a perfect racetrack because you just can't do that with them. So, um, but you do the best you possibly can. Um, and they're, they're a different challenge for drivers. And I think as a result, throw up sometimes some some pretty cool results and i and i think that's you know I, I think it's great to have them part of the series i know it's always a bit of a hot topic but um you know maybe not too many of them but have enough to really throw that really throw that excitement into the mix and that and and that edginess and that difference you know and i have to say you know i think Please don't ask me what year, but I can remember one year in Adelaide, the Satellite Saturday race. I'm going to say it was 03, but I might be wrong. Uh, and dear old Barry was still with us, Barry Sheen. And, and you know, he said to me after the race, I won't try and do the accent, but he said to me, you know, later that day or the next morning, he said, seriously, I think that race was the best touring car race I have ever seen anywhere. It was just incredible. And, you know, 
part of the thing that made it special was the nature of the circuit itself. So, you know, I think there's a lot going for street circuits. You just, it's just a question of having the balance, right? So you, you know, cause they bring something that um, permanent circuits don't, which of course is that having something right down in the middle of a city or an urban area, right where people, you know, adjacent to where people live and work and they can access more easily. And it just creates a completely different environment, different racetrack, different atmosphere. It's a good thing. Well, on that point, Tony, I certainly uh, thank you very much, as does Craig, to, uh, for joining us and giving us your thoughts, not only on uh, events such as Newcastle and Adelaide, but also reflecting on the uh, and giving us insight into the behind the scenes of supercars, of ESCO, Shane Howard, the early days, and uh, giving us an insight that we just can't get anywhere else. Greatly appreciate your time, Tony. And I will say to you now, we'd like to put an invitation for you to come back again and maybe post uh, Newcastle and uh, a few months into this year's series. So maybe April, May, something like that, if we could get you back on the show would be terrific. Yeah, happy to do that, Tony. Just let us know when. Always always up for a chat. All right. Thank you very much for joining us on Inside Supercars. Tony Manson, now... National Operations Manager for ISSS First Response, a man who knows the trucking and car game very well. Thank you again, Tony Manson. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.